0: Welcome, listeners, to Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from past audiobooks and other spoken word projects. You writers may also be given the chance to have your newly written material, fiction or nonfiction, read to an audience. This show will get the words out. And now, here's the host of Tom Reads Your Story, voice actor and podcaster Tom Zania. And thank you very much, Mr. Announcer, for that wonderful introduction. Tom Zanyu with you till, well, let's say a half hour or so, give or take a few minutes. This is Tom Reads Your Story. Tom Reads Your Story is for you guys who might be writers, who uh, might want their, whatever their piece is that they wrote, uh, read out loud by me. Um, and, uh, you may have poetry, you may have maybe, uh, a Facebook, uh, posting like the one I'm going to play for you today. Uh, maybe you're a novelist, uh, send it to me, Tom reads your story, all one word at yahoo.com. I would love to read it for you. Uh, as long as it's not a, you know, grocery list or something ridiculous, but Send it to me, I'll take a look at it, and chances are I'll jump at the chance to read it uh, to our listeners. So, today, uh, I have things, of course, that I'm playing, uh, an ad or two, and a couple of uh, other spoken word items. One is a short story by John Isaac Jones. John Isaac Jones is a writer from... I think he lives in Merritt Island, Florida right now. That's where Cape Canaveral is. But he he writes uh, a lot of uh, books, novellas, short stories, a lot of which you can find on audible.com. So definitely uh, check him out. John Isaac Jones, great author. This is going to be from Going Home. And uh, the other thing uh, is we have something that was a Facebook posting that I found last night that I really enjoyed. And I thought, God, I'd love to read this out loud. And so I got in touch with the writer, a very terrific friend of mine, Rodney Vaccaro, who I've known for many, many years. Um, I think we did a play together first and then, then he was directing all the time, but he has directed some wonderful productions in Grand Rapids, my hometown. And is now uh, a screenwriter uh, living out in L.A., has written some very good things for uh, film. And uh, I'm going to read something of his, and I'll talk more about it later. The first thing is going to be a passage from a book about ships that sail in the Great Lakes, like barges and stuff like that. It just sounded interesting to me. I think I I didn't submit it because there was something else uh, I wanted to work on. But um, we can listen to that right now. Each year, as the ice begins to melt on the Great Lakes, work begins on the bulk carriers anchored at their winter berths. During the darkest days of winter, the ships were entrusted to a few watchmen, or shipkeepers as they are known in the trade placed on board largely for insurance reasons. The shipkeepers made their rounds, checking ballast tanks and bilges, making sure the mooring lines were secure, and guarding against unauthorized persons coming aboard. But as spring approaches, the shipkeepers are joined by new faces, sailors who are often old friends. The galley crew comes first, to prepare the kitchen in order to feed everyone who follows. Next comes the engine crew to inspect the engines, make any needed adjustments, and ensure that the ship is ready to make way. About ten days after the engine crew begins work, the deck crew is called back to prepare the rest of the ship. If all goes well about a week later, the vessel is ready to sail. (laughs) And right before that stinger that you just heard, that was a, a piece called "Sailing into History," and it was about ships um, that sail on the Great Lakes. Very simply, it was a interesting little piece. I ended up not submitting for it because there was something else that came through. But uh, it was a a nice little piece there. And uh, next, we're going to hear. and add um, in regards to child sexual abuse. I work a day job with a law firm that takes on uh, well a number of things, but one of them is child sexual abuse cases. And uh, the the thing of it is, is we got so many calls in regards to that because of uh, priests and. Uh, so that litigation was taken on, and I think they're still working on that. But uh, uh, my day job is at a law firm uh, downtown in NoHo, which means north of Houston. And hopefully I'll be called back once, you know, things clear up with this pandemic. Um, but I was asked basically to be the voice of their, of the firm. I do a lot of the uh the spots well actually most of them for uh, for the firm the radio spots and uh, and tv spots the voices for that so uh, i was very lucky in that regard because i don't work in that department uh, i work in uh, client relations and uh, i was lucky enough to uh, impress someone to uh, be able to do uh, the voices for their ads so uh, Getting back to what I was saying, we did several uh, ads for, uh, regarding child sexual abuse, uh, regarding asbestos, lung cancer, and Monsanto, which is Roundup. Uh, we've done a lot of advertising about that, so I've been lucky enough to, to be involved. And uh, after that, uh, you'll hear a, a short spot for uh, First State Bank uh, in Missouri that uh, I did an audition for. Here it is. Father Romano Ferraro is a convicted child abuser and one of the worst priest sexual abusers in America. Father Ferraro has admitted to abusing dozens of boys at Catholic churches and schools throughout Brooklyn, Queens, and Long Island. He is currently serving a life sentence for abusing the seven-year-old son of a family friend in Massachusetts. The Catholic Church knew of Father Ferraro's serial abuse and repeatedly covered it up by transferring him to parishes throughout New York, New Jersey, and Missouri, and giving Father Ferraro access to new altar boys, students, teen programs, and children to target and abuse. There is no telling how many children Father Ferraro abused during his nearly 30-year career as a priest. If you were abused by Father Ferraro on Long Island, you don't have to suffer in silence. We can help you receive the justice and the closure you need. Help is just a phone call away. Over the last year, we've listened to our customers' stories from all around Southeast Missouri. And we've realized something. Our branding wasn't telling our story. Introducing the next chapter at First State Bank and Trust Company Incorporated. We have a new look and a new logo, but the same great people ready to help you. Reach your financial goals. Learn how we can help you succeed at fsbtrust.com, where banking local means local growth. And here now is a nice piece by a very good friend of mine, Rodney Vaquero, on the four year anniversary of his mother's passing. And it starts out with. I had an interesting thought today. I had an interesting thought today. Today is May 12th. It is the anniversary of my mother's death. She died four years ago. My mother was 91 when she died. I was thinking this morning that she had lived the 12th of May 91 times. I don't think this date had any significance. It was just the date that the machine she used on earth... Stopped working. But isn't it interesting that each of us has a date waiting? I have decided on mine. I want to die on the 24th of April, 2052, my 100th birthday. I just like the symmetry of that. I like the idea of transitioning on my birthday, and 100 sounds like a good number. Although as I get closer, 105 sounds better. But I am fascinated by the idea that my mother had 90 May-12s without knowing she would check out on 91. I also found this fascinating. She died in the living room of my sister Mary's house, where we had been caring for her. It is right across from Aquinas College, the college my brothers Peter and Phil attended and graduated from. My mother used to say she lived for years in the car, and that was true. "'Shuttling six kids here and there? "'Certainly she must have driven to Aquinas often. "'I am thinking of the route she would have taken "'and she would have passed the house "'she would eventually die in hundreds of times. "'I'm sure she never noticed it. "'It was just another house. "'But you can see it from Fulton. "'So it was in her sight "'whenever she ferried one of us to the college.' There is a large window in the living room that faced Fulton and an empty lot in front, so, theoretically, when she slowed down to turn left into the entrance of the college, she could have seen right into the room where she would eventually shuffle off her mortal coil. We had placed her hospital bed right by that window so she could see the trees and sky. Wow! Someplace in the world, there might be a room in which I will pass. It might be a place I know or a place I never imagined being. It might not be built yet. It might be someplace I've been dozens of times. I am comforted by the fact that both my mother and father died in places and in times where they felt comforted and loved. A familiar place that had good memories attached. I'm certain that by insisting on a date with the universe, I can affect the date. I wonder if I can affect the place. I know it sounds predictable, but I have always envied performers who died on stage. I am not a performer, so I wouldn't like to die performing. But just on stage. I find stages warm and womb-like. You know, as I directed... I became more and more insistent on removing as much masking as possible. I didn't like hiding the backstage, the mechanics. I despise orchestra pits. I'd like the audience to be aware of the magic and still find it magical, because that is this life, if we are at all observant. Magic in plain sight. My mother died next to a window, looking at the sky. I think I'd like to be on my back, lying on worn, creaky wood that has been danced on and walked on, painted and repainted, smelling sweat and paint, looking up into the lighting grid, knowing that anything is possible. And then, of course, was from my friend Rodney McCarroll. Thanks again. We have now a selection or uh, a snippet from the book called Going Home by John Isaac Jones. John uh, allowed me to do several of his books. This was, I think, the first or second. Uh, it's about a death row prisoner. And I really think you'll like it. Thanks. Archie was ready to die. At least he thought he was. The sentence had been formally read, he had had his last meal, and the prison chaplain had asked God to have mercy on his soul. Now, as he sat quietly in his cell, the hour was upon him. In the distance he could hear the doors of the outer cells opening and closing. The warden and his entourage were coming to take him to the electric chair. The sound of rattling keys and opening and closing of steel doors grew nearer and louder. Then he heard the door to the death row cell block open and a chorus of footsteps tromped across the concrete floor. With military precision... The entourage stopped in front of Archie's cell. There was the warden, two assistants, the chaplain, the executioner, and the prison physician. The warden faced Archie. Archibald William Johnson? he asked. That's me, Archie replied. With business-like certainty, the warden unfolded an official-looking document. Then he put on his glasses and began reading. The state of Georgia has decreed that you be executed in the electric chair at Valdosta State Prison at midnight on April twenty-third, 1961, which is today. The hour is now approximately 11.35 p.m. Some preparation time will be needed to carry out the court's order. You must come with us, so we may carry out the wishes of the state. Seconds later, the two assistants entered the cell, placed handcuffs on Archie's wrists, and escorted him out. Then the seven men, with Archie in front, started walking out of the death row cell block. Goodbye, Archie, said Charlie Fancher, another death row inmate whose cell was directly across from Archie's. Archie nodded at his old friend. May God have mercy on you, said Moses Washington, an older black man who had been Archie's best friend during his years on death row. Bye, Moses, Archie said. In about fifteen minutes you gonna be in hell, said Ray Ray Hollingsworth, whom Archie had once fought over a piece of cornbread in the prison mess hall. Archie glanced ominously at Ray Ray, then acted like he hadn't heard the words. The entourage stopped in front of the door to the death row cell block. The warden unlocked the door, waited for the others to pass, then relocked it. Now the seven men were starting the long walk from death row to the execution chamber. As the entourage passed through the steel and concrete corridor, Archie tried to appear as brave as possible. At age 47, he was a thin, smallish man, maybe five feet, eight inches, with sad eyes and thinning hair. He had two missing teeth and a slight stubble of beard. Jutting over the collar of his prison uniform on the right side of his neck was the top of a cross, a chain-gang tattoo he had acquired as a teenager in the state reformatory. Archie had not been a model citizen. He had been in and out of scrapes with the law for as long as he could remember. At the moment, he had been in state prison for eleven years. Eight on death row after he was convicted of murder during the robbery of a convenience store near Albany. Archie and his accomplice had taken just over $1,100 in the robbery and were making their getaway when a customer, an off-duty cop, came out of the store and started firing. As the robber's car backed up, then swung around and headed for the street, Archie, who was on the passenger side, took dead aim and dropped the cop with a single shot to the chest. Then they sped away. After almost a year, Archie was captured in Tennessee, then returned to Georgia. In the first trial, there was a hung jury because the state's chief witness, the clerk, couldn't remember important details of the robbery. In the second trial, however, a new prosecutor was brought in with a new witness and won a murder conviction. The judge said he had no choice but to sentence Archie to death. There had been too many prior felony convictions and Archie wasn't showing sufficient remorse. Over the next ten years, Archie's state-appointed attorneys appealed his conviction all the way to the state Supreme Court, where it was upheld. With that decision, Archie and his attorneys knew it was only a matter of time before the execution would be held. Two days before the scheduled execution, Archie had spoken with his lead attorney, who said he had found incriminating evidence against the state's new witness and had presented it to the court and the governor. The lawyer said he couldn't make any promises, but there was a very good chance that the governor would commute the sentence and grant him a new trial. It was Archie's only hope. The group had reached the execution chamber. Once the warden unlocked the door, Archie was led inside and the attendants uncuffed his hands, seated him in the wooden chair, and began strapping him in. And that is about it for today. I'd like to thank you all. For stopping by and listening to some things, uh, once again, Tom Reads Your Story is just that. I'll read your story. You send it in. Uh, I'll check it out, and we'll see if we can get the words out for you. And I'd like to thank Anchor.fm for allowing me to have this podcast. They made it very easy for me, and uh, I'm glad you came along. Have a really good rest of your day. Take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, audiobook or video project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tom Read your story.